I don't know why, but uh, I found myself reading the travel section of the newspaper the other day, <laughs> thumbing through all the various European city breaks and beach holidays. We don't have any plans for holidays in 2020. I don't suppose many people do. Things aren't likely to change, are they? But it's nice to dream in times like this. I was also on a walk with my eldest daughter last week, and um, she asked about visiting Egypt. Egypt is where her granny is from. We talked about one day staying in granny's house where she grew up, um, visiting Cairo and going to the Cairo Museum, going to the pyramids, sailing a boat on the Red Sea, maybe even, um, uh, sorry, on the Nile, and maybe even swimming in the Red Sea. She's never been to Egypt, but for whatever reason, uh, she feels strongly drawn to it, as if she was drawn home somehow. It's in Egypt that we pick up the nativity story again this morning. Yet for the Holy Family, their stay in Egypt was not a holiday destination or even a homecoming. Rather, it was a kind of exile. You'll remember how prompted by the Lord, Joseph and Mary had to flee their home country in order to protect that precious baby from Herod's murderous schemes. And they ended up a long way from Bethlehem in Judea. They must have wondered why they ended up there, especially after all the wonderful promises that were made to Joseph and to Mary about Jesus saving his people from their sins and fulfilling what was said through the prophets. People were all already coming to worship him, as we just heard in the reading, the Magi, bringing him gifts fit for a king. And now they're in Egypt. And there they wait as strangers in a foreign land, waiting for the chance to go home. And yet also, as we heard last week, that was no accident. It was the Lord who took them there. Every aspect of this story is governed by his plan including the family's protection and even the really difficult bits of this story. Nothing falls out of his providential care. Now that might be hard for us to grasp. God's providence, his governing of the world, his active uh, involvement with us is sometimes surprising and strange for us. But as we'll hopefully see this morning, his active promise providence in this story and in ours in 2021 as we head into this new year is also a source of great consolation of, of comfort when we don't understand why things are as they are and so using this story we're going to think about God's providence from two angles uh, that are brought to light here first we're going to think about the family's departure from Egypt and how it displays God's providence in the world. And second, we're going to think about the family's journey to Nazareth and how that displays God's providence in the fulfillment of his plans for the world. So first, the family's departure from Egypt demonstrates, displays God's providence in the world. We begin at verse 19. After... Herod died. 
According to the church's calendar, it's still the Christmas season. That's why we've got the the Christmas tree lights um, still on. But Herod is also part of that Christmas story. He doesn't often feature in our nativity scenes. Um, We don't have ornaments of Herod on a Christmas tree. I don't know about you. But we can't airbrush him out of the story. Because the truth is, Christmas is not all fun and games. Jesus was born into a world at a time when even children were deliberately killed to protect the power of tyrants. Evil was rampant then, and evil is rampant in our world today, sometimes in ways that are closer to Herod's activities than we dare to think. But Herod died. He was crafty and powerful, but not as powerful as he thought. His demise, like all of those in power, was inevitable. Herod died. But after Herod died, verse 19, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. It's no coincidence that those two things come together here. I recently um, read some research that came out of UCL, um, University College London, about lockdown dreams. And according to their research, um, people have been having more vivid dreams than they did prior to the period beginning um, roughly the 23rd of March 2020. I think we've talked about that before, but now it's um, known research. That's certainly been the case with me. The other night I dreamed that I was in a PlayStation game, but I was also the one controlling it. It was um, a bit trippy, like a Christopher Nolan film. Perhaps the psychoanalysts at UCL would conclude the same about Joseph's dreams that they're products of stress or exceptional circumstances. But it doesn't take much to see how these dreams are of a different kind entirely. This is Joseph's third dream from the Lord. And all of them have been timely. This one is mentioned in conjunction with Herod's death immediately afterwards. They've been authoritative. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph with an instruction, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. And they've been specific. Joseph is assured that those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. They finally began that long journey home. But that's not to say they were without danger. When Herod died, the territories of um, his kingdom were divided up amongst his sons. There were three sons. And um, the result was that the whole of Judea and Samaria and Udamea were under the rule of Archelaus, who's mentioned in our passage. And much like his father, Archelaus was, was volatile and cruel, perhaps even more volatile in some ways. He was... Um, a a bit of a liability. And so Joseph gets another dream, this time telling him to go further north, up into Galilee, where it's quieter, and where they remained. The point is, all the way through this, despite the vulnerabilities and threats that came upon them, God watched over and protected this family. It was not a lucky escape or merely accidental. They didn't cheat death. 
their preservation was entirely by the providence and will of God. Now, there's a special reason for the manner in which this family were preserved, which is what we'll um, come on to in, in a short moment. But just for now, let's think about us. Let's meditate on God's providence in our lives, even if our experience is, is different to this holy family. Because the truth is, God is no less involved with us. According to the Puritan writer John Flavel, there are so many benefits to meditating on God's providence in each and every one of our lives, specifically. He says it provides sweet and conscious communion with God day to day. Meditating on God's active providence in our lives brings pleasure and delight to the Christian life, even in great difficulty. It suppresses the natural atheism of our hearts. It endears us to Jesus Christ. It melts our pride. It brings peace of heart and mind. It strengthens us on our deathbeds. And it serves to remind us that God is the author and donor of all things. This is what John Flavel writes. Remember, he is the father of mercies that begets every mercy for you. The God of all comfort without whose order no mercy or comfort can come to your hands. So I, that is see, look at the care of God for you. I, the wisdom of God, in the way of dispensing his mercies to you, how suitably they are ordered to your condition and how seasonably. I, the condescension of God to your requests for those mercies. I, the design and end of God in all your comforts. I, the way and method in which your mercies are conveyed to you. They all flow to you through the blood of Christ and the covenant of grace. Mercies derive their sweetness from the channel through which they run to us. I, look at the distinguishing goodness of God in all the comfortable enjoyments of your life. I, them all as comforts appointed to refresh you in your way to far better and greater mercies than themselves. In all the sad and afflictive providences that befall you, I, God, as the author and orderer of them also, oh, see him passing by in the cloudy and dark days, proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Meditate on the Lord's providence. And so with all that in mind, let me ask you, how has God provided for you in the last year? How has God taught you to persevere in the faith? How has he ministered his comfort to you? In what ways have you been led from temptation and sin? How has he changed us as a, as a church, as a church family? What have we learnt in 2020 about ourselves, about the church, about God? What was hard? What was surprising? What caused us to pray? How were we led to worship God? Now, perhaps those things aren't immediately obvious to you or, or to me. If that's the case, don't be wrongly discouraged. 
It may be that God is still teaching us patience, inviting us to come to him and find comfort and wisdom through unanswered questions and really challenging ongoing circumstances. And you know, we'll never know or understand all of God's plans and purposes. We don't know the mind of God. He is God and not us. We're not meant to. But by meditating on God's providence, it will bring us to God with wonder, joy, and greater praise of him. So the family's departure and journey from Egypt displays God's providence in the world. And it, it, it brings us to ask how God uh, is at work in our lives too. Second, the family's journey to Nazareth displays God's providence in the fulfillment of his plans for the world. Back when I was teaching history, it was really important to help my students make connections between um, events or ideas. And with a subject like history, you might have a, a great mass of information or sources, ideas um, from which to draw, um, from all sorts of perspectives. And the historian's task is to assess and correlate um, and then make an argument about their connection. And so I'd set them questions like, to what extent did the, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand um, in Sarajevo on the 28th of June, 1914, it's been a while, um, spark the First World War? Perhaps that was a question that you yourself had to answer for GCSE or even O-level history. The point is, sometimes things appear coincidental or even random at first. And it's only when you look back, you begin to see their connection. That's even more true of God's plan of salvation as re revealed here in Scripture. Because unlike us, God is the first cause, the primary cause of all things. And he's the divine author of all Scripture. Which means that it should be no surprise to us when we see um, things connect and resonate with other events or patterns in Scripture. For instance, Herod is not the only tyrant in history to kill off boys for a consolidation of power. Back in Exodus 1, you might remember that the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, did exactly that to the Israelites. But through a series of strange and unlikely events, Moses survived as the one remaining child. He and the rest of God's people lived in slavery in Egypt for a time, but then God delivered them out of Egypt through Moses. Our episode here in Matthew 2 is saturated with Exodus language and, and patterns of fulfillment. Why? Because the Exodus is one of the primary ways that Scripture describes our ultimate salvation in Christ. It's no accident. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. And through that son, the eternal son who comes to us, God dwells in our midst and calls people home out of exile and out of death into new life. Remember that genealogy at the beginning. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, here we now also see that Jesus is a, a, a new Moses, that little baby boy would grow up to be the true deliverer. 
he himself would go through the waters of death and lead his people into the land of promise. So the family's movements and all these locations are not random. They mean something more than uh, Joseph avoiding local threats. In fact, they display and express the wonderful providence and plan of God. There is a puzzling part of this passage, though, um, as there often is when we come to God's inexhaustible wisdom in his word. It's in verse 23. <clears throat> in fact, I might just put it back up on the screen for those here in, in church. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. The reference to Nazareth is highly significant, as you'd expect. But what's puzzling is that it's not obvious what Old Testament scripture or scriptures Matthew is referring to when he cites the prophets. Some have suggested that um, the word for Nazarene derives from the Hebrew word for branch in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, Neser in the Hebrew, but that has linguistic difficulties and is pretty unlikely in my opinion. There are many occasions when Matthew quotes a specific text and a specific prophet, um, but this doesn't seem one of those, because when he, nor when he does that, he normally um, uses a specific formula, like, like verse 15, which we had read. Um, and so what was fulfilled, what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I will call my son, or verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, a voice is heard in Ramah, etc., here in verse 23, it's far more likely that Matthew is um, speaking of a general concept, not a specific prophet, not a specific verse. And part of the reason for that is grammatical. Um, he uses the plural prophets, but also changes the clause in the formula to indicate that it's not a direct quote. But much more importantly, if, if grammar doesn't float your boat, much more importantly, as we've seen already, Matthew draws on a wide variety of themes and imagery from the Old Testament as he tells this story. For him, all of Scripture prefigures Christ in some way. And there are patterns and motifs that lay behind the mere words. So what does it mean for Jesus to be called a Nazarene? Well, I think there are two options, both of which are true in themselves, according to Scripture, but I confess I'm not certain either way, and I have to be upfront about that. Essentially, it's either a reference to Jesus' holiness or his lowliness. The Hebrew word nasir denotes a holy person. It's the word from which we get Nazarite. The Nazarites in the Old Testament were consecrated or set apart for a special purpose, a special task in Israel's worship. Samson, for example, was a Nazarite. He was consecrated and set apart to save Israel from its enemies, which eventually he did through his own death. The older interpreters tend to favor this option. Jesus the Nazarene, uh, a play on words with Nasser, is a reference to his holiness. And so the whole of the Old Testament law code, therefore, is in view in Matthew's citation of the prophets. Equally, the reference to Jesus being a Nazarene could refer to his lowliness. Nazareth 
was a small and despised town. You might remember how Nathaniel responded to Philip when Philip said, um, told him that Jesus came from Nazareth. He said, how can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth is also in Galilee. Galilee means removal. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a district, it's a place um, of outsiders, of outcasts. So Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who'd inherit the land of promise, the land of Israel, will be called a Nazarene? Really? Yes, really. Because according to the prophets, the Lord's Messiah would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. A Nazarene. Either way, whether it's a reference to Jesus' holiness or his lowliness, it's a magnificent description of Jesus and a wonderful fulfillment of God's plans. In God's providence, even before Jesus' ministry begins, as the baby is carried, think about that, the Messiah is carried uh, by his parents from Egypt to Nazareth, we see the plan of God coming to light. The family's departure from Egypt displays God's providence in the world and even in us. God is actively involved in our lives. And the family's journey to Nazareth demonstrates God's providence in the fulfillment of his plans for the world. And we're going to respond now as we close by joyfully confessing our faith in that God as we say the, uh, the Apostles' Creed together. So if you would stand. <laughs>